All right, we're going to study something rather unusual tonight for some of you that you've never heard. We're going to study about giants and devils and the flood. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Now, Genesis chapter 6 has often been misunderstood. Now, hundreds of years ago, it was properly understood. In fact, I was reading a book by a Jewish atheist, and he was arguing against the truth of the Word of God. One of his arguments was that the Bible taught that devils copulated with females and produced offsprings that were giants and these individual giants were recognized as gods, demigods, little gods of the people. He said that Christians were not aware of that, that they didn't know that their Bible taught that. Well, no, for 2,000 years now, at least, Christians have been well aware that the Bible taught that, but many Christians deny it. We're going to see it here in Genesis chapter 6 very clearly. Genesis 6, 1, it came to pass that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, that daughters were born unto them. And the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Notice those phrases, contrast them. Sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and took them wives of all which they chose. Now had that said that the sons of men took the daughters of men as wives because they were fair, there would not be anything unusual. That's the history of the planet earth. There's nothing uh, sinful or wicked about that. But this act was a very wicked and a sinful act when the sons of God took the daughters of men because it produced something unusual. It says, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. That's God's response to this awful act of the sons of God marrying daughters of men. He said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh. Now, when God said that man also is flesh, was he saying that man is also flesh like I am flesh? Obviously not. God's not flesh. So when he says he also is flesh, is he saying that in addition to something else that man is flesh? That would be an obvious redundancy. Also in, in reference to what? He hasn't given us any foundation from which he can add this remark that man's also flesh. The also refers back to the sons of God taking the daughters of men. For that he also, man, is also flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. You say, the giants is not relevant to the sons of God taking the daughters of men. Yes, it is. Look what he says. And also after that, at that time and after that time, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men. To came in unto means sexual cohabitation. So he says that in those days and after that time of the flood, in those events when sons of God went into sexually into the daughters of men, the byproduct of that sexual union was a giant. The giants are produced by sons of God and daughters of men and the product is also flesh. And then he said, and they bear children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. So we're told that the offspring of sons of God and daughters of men is not only a giant, but an individual that's recognized as highly influential in the world of that day. Now, archaeology has found evidence of giants. Not only are there many writings of other peoples of that time who refer to giants in that area, but they also found a bed about 10 feet long made out of iron where one of them had been sleeping. Now, he didn't play for the NBA. He was a giant who lived in the land we call Palestine. The Bible refers to them quite a bit later on. And he says, and God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from off the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowl of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence, and God looked upon the earth, 
Behold, it was corrupt. Now notice the wording there. He said, the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. In other words, God is adding something to this. He's not restating the sin, the former sin, the first sin, the thing that provoked him to bring the death to the human race. He's not restating it. He's adding something to it. He's saying, in addition to the first sin, sons of God taking the daughters of men, the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt and all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Now, not just every individual, but the flesh particularly was what had become corrupted. In other words, through this union of sons of God and daughters of men, the byproduct being giants, there was a corruption of the flesh of the people of that day. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them, through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God's intention in bringing this flood and destroying all flesh was because something terrible had occurred, something which ought not occur. Sons of God marrying daughters of men, producing giants, men who were men of renown, men whose flesh was corrupted, and God was provoked to destroy the earth, all flesh, because of that corruption of flesh. So you see, Noah's flood was not about God destroying the earth just because there was violence or just because there was sexual immorality, but it was because there was a copulation that produced corruptible flesh. Now you say, but how could an angel wed to a human being? How could that occur? The passage of Scripture in the New Testament where Jesus is talking about in heaven, they're neither marrying nor giving in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Now, he didn't say as angels of God incapable of marrying. He said that they will be, when we get to heaven, we will be as the angels of God who are in heaven, who do not marry and are not giving in marriage. He didn't say anything about the nature of an angel. He talked about what occurs in heaven, that in heaven there is no marrying and giving in marriage. Now, the sons of God saw the daughters of men. If you take Schofield's Bible or some other commentaries and look in Genesis chapter 6, they say that the sons of God were the righteous line coming down from Seth. The Bible nowhere speaks of any righteous line coming down from Seth. It never occurs. Nor does the Bible speak of any group of righteous people. And so that's a complete figment of someone's imagination, trying to give definition to the sons of God. And furthermore, that would not explain why when the sons of God married the daughters of men, it produced giants. When righteous men marry good-looking women, I mean, that's all they did here, said they were fair. They took them of wives, of all which they chose. Would that produce a giant, a man of renown? The term son of God appears 11 times in the Bible. We're going to look at uh, several of them here. Now, in the Old Testament, it appears five times, Son of God. And the other four times, in addition to this one, are all references to angels. No human being is called a Son of God in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, it refers to Adam as a Son of God. But that was before he sinned. After Adam sinned, he's not called a son of God. And the only time anyone is called a son of God is an angel. Notice Job 1.6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before God and Satan came also among them. Those are angels. And Satan is called a son of God. He came with the sons of God before God. Job 2.1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Again, angels. Job 38.7. And he asked Job a question. He reminds Job of the creation of the earth. And he says, Job, were you there when all the sons of God shouted for joy? He's referring to the angelic beings. They're called sons of God. Now, the other two references are Genesis 6.2 and Genesis 6.4. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, 6-4, and after that when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So because no one is regenerated in the Old Testament, 
No one is called a son of God. Now, John 1.12, it says this in the New Testament. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. No one had ever been up to that time. And Romans 8, 14, 8, 19, uh, Philippians 2, 15, 1 John 3, 1, and John 3, 2, all refer to Christians as sons of God. But no one, Abraham, David, Elijah, Moses, none of them were ever called sons of God. And so we have a clear statement that angelic beings came down and copulated with females. Now, there are two passages in the Old Testament that would be the closest thing to calling someone a son of God. It's the closest possibility. Exodus 4:22, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. He's referring to the whole nation of Israel, and he calls Israel his son, but he doesn't call them sons of God. He just said, Israel as a nation is my son, my firstborn. And then in Isaiah 43, 6, he says, I will say to the north, give up. To the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. That'd be the closest possibility. And again, it does not call them sons of God. Now, in Psalm 82, here's an interesting psalm. Listen to this psalm. Psalm 82, 1 through 8. He said, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Gods, little g. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. He's referring to a time when the earth was without form and void. When the foundations were out of course. I have said, here's what he said, quote, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. So at a period of time when the foundations of the earth were out of course, as in Genesis 1, without form and void. At that time, he said to them, you are gods, children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So back in that period of time before the creation of Adam and Eve upon the earth, there was a time when the earth was without form and void, darkness upon the face of the deep, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Sometime prior to that recreation, God said to a group of individuals, you are gods. You are gods. You walk on in darkness. You're children of the Most High, but you'll die like men and fall like one of the princes. These individuals were obviously not men since they were told that they were going to die like men. Now in Genesis 3, 5, For God doth know that the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So when God said to Adam and Eve, in the day you eat that, you're going to have your eyes open like the gods, little g, have their eyes open. And you're going to know good and evil like the gods know good and evil. God speaks of himself as the God of gods. That is, he's the God who is over the gods. Now, the gods are created individuals who will die like men. So he said, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, angels sinned. We know that from the scripture. Angels sinned. 1 Corinthians 6, 3 says, know ye not that ye shall judge angels? Talking to Christians. Christians are going to stand in judgment of angels who sinned. And we have a misperception of angels. The Bible speaking of angels in the book of Hebrews says that be careful to entertain strangers because in doing so, he said, many have entertained angels unawares. That is, there have been people who've taken in a stranger from off the street or picked him up in the car or whatever and fed him a meal or invited him into the house, give him a night's lodging, not knowing that that human looking creature that he invited home and into his house was an angel. Now that's the word of God. Either we're Bible believers or we're not. That means there have been times when angels have actually walked. And he said many, many, not just occasional, but many have entertained. That means you sat around and talked with them, told them stories. You sang songs with them. You fed them. 
You entertained them. You spent the evening in their face entertaining them. And they laughed or they cried or they talked back and they heard your stories and you didn't know that that was an angel you were entertaining. You say, have you ever done that? I really don't know if I have or not. He said you were unaware. So if you're unaware, you're unaware, right? I mean, they're absolute, complete, convincing as human beings. And he said that these are the gods. These are the gods. Now, in uh, Jude 9, he says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he was having a little dispute. He disputed about the body of Moses. So there was a point when Moses died that the Satan walked up and wanted to take Moses' body. And Michael, an archangel, argued with him over it. But he said he didn't bring railing accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuke thee. So here's an interesting, very human-like confrontation between two personages, both of them wanting to do something with the dead corpse of Moses. The devil walks up and wants to haul the body of Moses off, wants to do something with it. I don't know what the old pervert wanted, but he wanted the dead body of Moses. And Michael the archangel is there to claim the body. And Satan says, I've got it. I've got a right to it. It's mine. Probably mentioned Moses' sin of murder. Maybe some of his other sins. Said he's a sinner. You've got no right to this body. They're all mine. And the archangel didn't argue further. He just said, the Lord rebuke thee. Satan had to step back. And then Michael did whatever God intended for him to do with the body of Moses. Then in Job 4, 18 says, Behold, he put no trust in his servants and his angels he charged with folly. God charged, accused his angels with folly. In Matthew 25, 41, Then shall he say unto them on the right hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So God did not make hell for man. God made hell for the devil and the devil's angels. That is, the devil has some angels under his authority. And God created a home for the devil and his angels. It's called the lake of fire. It's called hell. So he says to the unrighteous men, depart from me into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Second Peter 2 4 says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment, he spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person of preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world, the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them examples unto those that afterwards should live ungodly. He relates angels that sinned to Noah and to Sodom and Gomorrah. Then in Jude 6, he has a similar statement. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. Now look that word habitation up. It's just used twice in the Greek language in the New Testament. And the Greek commentators say the word habitation means the body, the human body, as a dwelling place, that particular word. The other time it's used in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, where it says, For in this we groan, desiring earnestly to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. That house is the same word as habitation. Our habitation from heaven. So the word carries the meaning. You wouldn't use it for your brick and mortar house. You wouldn't use it that way. There are other words for that. You wouldn't use it for a tent or a lean-to. When he speaks of a habitation, he's speaking of the body, the place where we're at home in the body. So he says these angels which kept not their first habitation, he's talking about some angels who went after strange flesh. He's going to say that. Now I know this is <laughs> weird to some of you. But the Bible's a weird book. And you're either going to be a Bible believer or you're going to take the Bible like Aesop's fables, 
draw a few Sunday school principles out of it, live about half of them, and let the other half go by, or else you're going to believe it like it's written. And when you believe it like it's written, you're going to be weird. Now listen to this. He says, The angels which kept not their first estate, Jude 6, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of that great day. Now, are we besieged today as believers by devils? By angels that fell? Are we besieged by them? Yes, we are, right? They still war in the heavens. We know that, in fact, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9, it says, And the dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. That's yet to come. So, Satan still has access to heaven, and the fallen angels still have access to heaven, and will not be cast out. So, those angels are not, obviously, reserved in chains of darkness, now are they? And yet there is a group of angels reserved in chains of darkness under the judgment of the great day. And these angels are not loose. They're not free. They're not possessing bodies. They're not tempting anyone. They are bound up. Like we read in the book of Revelation, the four angels who were bound in the great river Euphrates. And a key was given and these angels were loosed from their bound state. Or like we read about Satan during the thousand year reign, the Bible tells us that he was bound for a thousand years. He was not free. And at the end of the thousand years, it said he was loosed out of his prison. So God can bind, can imprison, can lock up fallen angels and at a later date release them. So here's a group of angels, he said, which are reserved in chains under darkness unto, that is in anticipation of, the judgment of that great day. Even as, now I'm not skipping anything here, these angels are reserved in judgment even as, do you know what that is in, in a speech? Even as is a simile. This is like that. This thing is like that thing. Even as, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner in the same way Sodom and Gomorrah and these cities in the same manner as the angels giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh and that's pretty clear that these angels that left their first habitation and went after strange they did that just like Sodom and Gomorrah when they went after strange flesh, you say, when did they do it in Sodom and Gomorrah? Now, he could be referring to the homosexuality of Sodom and Gomorrah, or it could be referring to angels that sinned. You say, but they were destroyed in the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah was later. I would remind you that David killed giants. David went after giants and slew them. All right. <laughs> Let me read the passage again. And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh despise dominion and speak evil of dignitaries yet Michael the archangel and it goes on and speaks of Michael when he's contending with Satan so in this context he speaks of angels leaving the first habitation Sodom and Gomorrah in like manner going after strange flesh and then he speaks of Michael contending with Lucifer over the body of Satan now that thing could get real weird you do realize that all perversion starts with the devil don't you you realize that all sodomy and perversion begins with the devil. That he's the author and creator of it. Now there's your ugly story. You do realize that some of the people are in jail are in jail for some things like that. Even concerning bodies. I don't know. But it's ugly. Now... In Psalm 104.4, he says, He maketh his angels spirits 
his ministers of flaming fire. Angels are not spirits naturally. In other words, angels have a tangible form. Matthew twenty-two thirty says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor given in marriage, but are as angels in heaven. But 1 Timothy 5, 21 says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and before the elect angels that thou observe these things. So he's saying, I'm charging you before the angels, the righteous angels who are looking on. 2 Peter 2, 11 says, Whereas angels which are greater in power and might bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. So angels are a little greater and a little more powerful in might than humans are. In Daniel 10, 2, and this is very interesting. Daniel's been praying for 21 days. I'm telling you this to show you the nature of angels. He's been praying for 21 days and not gotten his answer. And Daniel's used to getting quick answers. On one particular day, he had to get it within 24 hours or he'd have been a dead man. And so on this day, Daniel begins to pray, no answer, no answer. A week goes by, no answer. Two weeks go by, no answer. Three weeks go by, no answer. And then all of a sudden, there appears before him an angel. And the angel explains why. It took him three weeks to answer Daniel's prayer. Now this is Bible. This is, this is not Sunday school. This is Bible. Listen to it. He said unto him, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand to chasten thyself before thy God, the words were heard that the very first day. I am come for thy words. But, he's explaining why it was late. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. The prince of Persia resisted this angel and physically prevented him from getting there to answer Daniel's prayer. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. And he goes on, he answers Daniel's prayer, and then he says, I've got to return to the battle. The battle was still going on, and he had to go back and fight. So what we have here in the Bible, this is Bible truth, is that angels have a form that can be tied up, chained up, locked up, resisted, or held down. Do you remember when Jacob was sleeping on a, with a rock for his pillow? In the middle of the night, someone grabbed him. And so Jacob reaches up and gets this someone in a headlock and does a little hip roll on him and then begins to punch him in the ribs. And then uh, whatever this is, puts his feet into old Jacob's stomach and flips him back. And before that attacker can get up, Jacob's on him again. And Jacob gets him in a full Nelson, begins to squeeze and squeeze and trying to squeeze the breath and life out of him. And that thing goes on for an hour, two hours. They wrestle, they wrestle, they wrestle. And just about the time the sun is about to go up, the creature says to Daniel, turn me loose, the sun's coming up. I got to leave for daylight. And Daniel said, oh, wait, I see who you are. <laughs> You're one of those angels. You're no ordinary human being. You're not my brother Esau. Bless me before you go. And the angel had to hit uh, Jacob on the thigh and do a little magic on him, a little, little whatever, uh, and, and hamstring him there, whatever he did to him. But he ended up leaving him crippled for the rest of his life. He had to, he had to do something beyond the natural physical strength of an angel in order to defeat Jacob. He had to use a little little of his uh, stuff on him, whatever it is, uh, to, to put him down. And then the angel says to him, you've wrestled with God and prevailed. In other words, you beat me, fella. You wrestled me into submission. I couldn't get away. Now, Jacob wasn't any sissy. He'd been out working uh, all of his life. And the angels are normally a little tougher, but Jacob was, must have been a big fella. His brother Esau was a big fella, but Jacob must have been a pretty good fella to whip this angel. So what we find about angels is they are very tangible, very physical, unless God makes them into a spirit. You remember how Jesus could make himself into a spirit, transport himself. Paul said, I know a man, said, I don't know if he was in the flesh or spirit, but said he was taken up into heaven and he saw things wonderful. The Bible says there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. God can transport us into a spiritual realm and we can function without the limitations of human flesh. But our natural state is that of flesh. An angel's natural state is that of flesh. 
An angel must eat. We'll see that. He has to have food and he grows grain to eat. And heaven has grain growing in it. That corn that angels eat. Uh, and we'll see that verse here in a moment. So we've got these ancient uh, medieval concepts of angels as little feminine creatures with these little two small wings, you know, and little bitty harps, cheap harps, look like dime store harps. <laughs> wouldn't make, wouldn't make, can you imagine playing a harp? Bing, 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 little about that big. Wouldn't make much music, would it? Little, little cheap harps and little bitty wings and sitting around on clouds. And that's the way they picture angels. Angels are never pictured like that. You remember one time when uh, Joshua was getting ready to go to battle and he walks out and here's a big soldier standing out in front of him with a sword and, and Joshua looks at him and says, hmm, whose side are you on? Now obviously this angel was uh, pretty impressive. He wanted to know which side he was on. He'd like to have him on his side. If he's on the other side, he was in trouble. And the angel said, I'm not on either side. I'm on the Lord's side. I'm the captain of his army. Oh, there's something else, eh? So we find angels going out to battle. We find them carrying weapons. We find them with shields. We find them with bucklers. We find them very human in the Bible. So if you didn't know anything, if you were a tribe of people who didn't know anything about religion, Christianity, and I was teaching you about angels, I would say, okay, I have come here to you, and you never saw me before, a white man, a foot taller than you, uh, you never saw anything like me, hair on my face. I said, I'm a strange creature to you, right? Yeah. I said, but I'm a human just like you. In other words, I'm one of the creatures God created. I would say to him, there's another group of people different from us that were made before we humans were made. And these people are called angels. They're just like us, except they're, they're bigger and they're more powerful than I am. And they're righteous and they're close to God. Except some of them, just like you have disobeyed God and I've disobeyed God, some of these other people called angels disobeyed God. And when they did, God cast them down to the earth and took their bodies away. So when I left them, they wouldn't have the concept that came out of the medieval time about an angel. They would think of angels in the biblical reality as another race of beings from another planet, a race of humanoid type creatures, but not humans, that come from some distant place created before us that were physical and tangible and would die or perish just like we die or perish if their bodies are not sustained. Can you see how different they would think of angels than what Americans think of angels? See how different their reality be? And then when we explain to them that these angels traveled in ships, metallic things that were created and made like the airplane they saw landing but they travel much faster they travel at the speed of lightning and they come and go then they would have an additional clear picture of what angels are like no wonder the modern man has trouble with bible teaching because bible teaching comes across as some kind of fable stuff when people say to me, are there life on other planets? Of course there's life on other planets. Well, what do they look like? Well, they look like us, except they're a little taller and they're kind of shiny brass colored. That's their... You say, well, where'd you get that? Well, I got it out of the Bible. There's life on other planets. There's life that God's created other than us. We're not the first thing created. Now, let's read on here a little further. Let's look in Psalm 78, 24. You remember the manna that God sent down from heaven? Now, when we tell that to children, they kind of think of the clouds just sort of condensing manna. And that something just sort of materializes in the air and just falls to the earth. And Here's what the Bible says. And had rained down manna upon them to eat, had given them of the corn of heaven. Man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. So we find out that the manna the children of Israel ate in the wilderness was made from corn that's grown in heaven that angels used as a staple. That means angels have physical bodies that must have food to sustain itself. That they eat. And that this corn is grown in heaven. Now I don't think necessarily it's grown in maybe in just one spot. It might be grown in a lot of different places. 
But somewhere there are tonight, there are some angels tending corn. There's a field, waving green, a little breeze blowing, sun shining on it, a little rain falling. Angels are watching it and saying, we're going to have a good crop this year. Well, we always have a good crop. You know, those folks down on earth, they have some lousy crops sometimes. We always have a good crop, don't we? Yes, the Lord brings sunshine, brings the rain, we have a good crop. Say, so, you know what the brother so-and-so did with the corn last year? said, he came up with a new thing. said, you just take it and soak it in little wood ashes and you make hominy out of it. Well, we've been doing that down south here for a long time. These angels have corn to eat. And they made a wafer-type food that tastes like honey and carbon seed. It reminds me of a granola bar, the way they described it. A little wafer like a granola bar. So they went out and they got these things up. Now, people have speculated that they tried to make something naturalistic out of it that some kind of little hoarfrost fell, you know, and they went out just scraping up little, little, some kind of little natural stuff. There was no such thing. This was angel food that they ate. Now, in Numbers 13, 33, and there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were in their sight. This is after the flood, and there's the sons of Anak, giants again. Deuteronomy 2.20. That also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwell therein in old time. The Amorites called them Zamzumums, a people great and many and tall as the Anakins, but the Lord destroyed them before them and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead. God commanded them to destroy all these giants. It said there were many of them, quite a few of them. Deuteronomy 3, 9, which Hermon the Zidonadans called Siron, the Amorites, and he goes on, he names a bunch of them. And he says, uh, of the remnant of the giants, behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Raboth of the children of Ammon? Nine cubics was the length thereof. That would be uh, somewhere around about 13 feet. And four cubics, the breadth of it, after the cubic of a man. He was a big one. They were bragging about his size. His bed was about 13 feet or a little better. That's one big, <laughs> big bed. I mean, he could walk up to the basket and put his foot in it, couldn't he? He wouldn't have to jump up. He could put his foot in it, the you know, basketball court. So this was a big one, and they're bragging about him. And he said, now, we've still got his bed around. He, most of them had been killed off by the time of this writing, but the beds were still uh, kept on exhibit. 1 Samuel 17, 4, And there went out a champion of the camp of the Philistines, this is during David's time, named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubics and a span. So six cubics would be six times about 18 inches, which would be about nine feet. And add to that a span, and I think that's the, the hand. So that'd be about nine feet, six inches, or nine feet, seven or eight inches. So he was just, un, just under 10 feet tall. He was a little one. Now, he was a byproduct of a son of God. You said, but if the angels, which kept not their first estate, were bound in chains, how'd they get out to copulate? The angels that sinned before man was created were disembodied and became spirits. The angels that sinned and cohabitated would have had to have been angels who'd not yet fallen. Angels that were not sinful angels at the creation of Adam and Eve. Angels that during the time of Noah were righteous and serving God, but walked up and saw these good looking women and said, I've got to have me one of them. And he left his habitation and went after strange flesh. It was not natural to him. And it produced a freak, a giant. But the giant was more intelligent, apparently, than ordinary human beings. But there were no match for David. He took one down with a little rock. So let's add that to their children's story. <laughs> we talk about David and Goliath. And tell them the whole story. You see, that's where most people get their Bible stories. is from Sunday school, and that's about as far as they ever go with it. And so they miss all these things. Now, in 2 Samuel 21:15. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel, and David went down and his servant with him and fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint 
and Ishibanoth, which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, he being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. Verse 18, he says, which was of the sons of the giants. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elihim, the son of uh, the Benjamite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So that was a, something about uh, four inches in diameter and about 12, 15 feet long. And there was yet a battle in Gath where was a man of great stature, this is in uh, verse 20, that had on every hand six fingers and on every foot six toes, four and twenty in number, and he was also born to the giant. So we find that this freak that resulted from the cohabitation of a righteous angel at the time he cohabitated with the woman not only produced overly large individuals, but also caused them to have genetic dysfunctions to have six fingers and six toes. If you've ever seen anybody with six toes, they're not functional properly. In other words, they're, well, one of them's a freak. And so it is with the six fingers. So that's the way these giants were. And this further confirms the idea that these giants were a genetic freak. Now, the Hebrew word Neptilim, the word used here for this pre-flood giant in Genesis 6, I'm going to read you from several Bible dictionaries what they say. Now, these are, these are liberal Writings. They're, they're not going to believe what I'm telling you here. And I didn't pick these because they favored my view. This is what they are forced to conclude based on the language. And so they're conceding something here that supports my position, but they wouldn't want to concede it. In fact, sometimes after stating the truth, they try to renegotiate it. But he says, Nephthalim, people of pre-flood generation, the offspring of the daughters of men and divine beings, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Their generation had their conduct seemed to have provoked the flood as punishment, Genesis 6. The Israelite spies described the inhabitants of Hebron as Nephthalim, so large and powerful that we seemed as grasshoppers. The name could mean fallen ones and allude to stories in related cultures of rebellious giants defeated by the gods in older times. In other words, he said this is the word that was used in other languages and cultures of that day to refer to the gods marrying women and producing giants. That's the word they used. It was a word common in that day for the very thing that we see here. And then uh, Rephaim, which is another word used for giant, a noun appearing in three contexts of the Bible. He says, uh, he knoweth not the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of hell. He says this is a pre-Israelite inhabitants of Transjordan. And he says, they're giants from Philistia. He gives some verses. The relationship between these uses is obscure. In Joshua 7, 14, Joshua answered them, if thou be a great people... Then get thee up to the wood country and cut down for thyself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephim giants. And that's used 17 times. And then the New Bible Dictionary in reference to the word Rephim, which is giants. He said the word occurs in the sense of, and this is what he said the word means, ghost of the dead. That's what the word giants means, ghost of the dead. And it is suggested by some that the name Rephim was applied by the Israelites to the early inhabitants of the land as persons long since dead. The word occurs in Yergotic, perhaps referring to a class of minor gods or sacred gill, though the meaning is uncertain. And in Phoenician tomb inscriptions, it's used in the sense of ghost. In other words, this word was in current use at that time that referred to the ghost of the dead, the departed, the long, those that had been long since dead. And that's the word the Bible chose to use in reference to these giants. And then uh, Anakim is another word that's used, and it means literally long neck, sons of Anakim. It's first mentioned as such in Deuteronomy 1.28, it's a race of giants. 
This is what the New Bible Dictionary says. A word used to describe the early giant peoples of Palestine. And they're spoken as the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, which come of the Nephilim. The word Anak, however, may be the name of the race rather than of an individual. And he goes on, he says, The greatest man among them was Arba, who gave his name to the city of Kerbeth Arbeth, called Hebron. He says, seemed to be the progenitor of the race. Presumably, the, he founded the city. And he says, he's chiefly destroyed by Joshua, except a remnant. And Caleb ultimately destroyed them, which were the giants. The Nephilim mentioned above are found in two passages. And he gives those in Genesis 6, 4, the one we looked at, which indicate the existence of giants born in a manner contrary to nature. That's Genesis 6, 4. He said this has a reference to giants born in a manner contrary to nature. The word may be derived from the Hebrew verb, and he gives it, and of course I can't read it, to fall. And so it comes from the Hebrew verb to fall, the fallen ones. And he said, these perished in the flood with the rest of the race. And he said, the, and he gives some other passages, indicates that he said, the records of the Canaanite nations suggest, however, and these were the Canaanite people who lived there before the Jews showed up. However, that the existence of these beings indicates similar conditions contrary to nature and not merely a race of formal persons of gigantic stature. In other words, the context, the meaning of that word is used by the people of that day is indicating something more than just large statue. It's indicating people that were long since dead, that are ghosts, that have their origin through some unnatural means. Now all the evidence in the ancient languages, in the ancient cultures, verify the scripture teaching that sons of God came down and cohabitated with the daughters of men and produced an offspring that was a man of renown, a giant, that God wanted killed off. And he sent the children of Israel in to kill the men, the women, and the children. Have you ever wondered why God was so cruel and hard on the Canaanites? Have you ever wondered why he would wipe out a race of people entirely? What other time did he do that? He did that during the flood. Why? During the flood, because all flesh had corrupted its way. In Canaan, why? Because they too had corrupted their flesh through this Corrupted union, strange flesh. And God wanted every last vestige of that union wiped out. You say, does it occur today? It could. In other words, a righteous angel today who's still in a natural body of flesh could see a female and decide to break away from God and take that female and cohabitate with her. It could happen. I don't think it happens on the level that it used to. It may not ever happen at all anymore. You say, why? Well, the angels, when they were first created, didn't have an example of sin and damnation. They didn't know what the judgments of God were like. They'd never seen any. And they too were new in their character development. And so some of them sinned against God and the others watched what happened and the results of it. And so those who have resisted sin and walked in obedience have developed the knowledge of good and evil over the last thousands of years. And they have doubtless confirmed their souls in righteousness and have developed a character that would prevent them from making such a stupid, vain choice that will end them in the lake of fire. They've had a chance to see the fires of hell and hear the cries of the damned now. They've had a chance to see Christ's victory over the grave and his power. You see, at one time, and we didn't get to that passage, we may deal with that next time. At one time, Satan thought he could march on heaven and overthrow God. He actually thought he could do that. He thought he could come and take the throne of God and kick God out and dwell where God dwelt. He didn't have any example. He found out otherwise. And so these angels at one time obviously thought they could get away with this. Thought they could go down and produce a mighty race of beings and rule and control the world. And they had been living forever up until that point, not dying. But their offsprings were mortal and died. And so these angels were doubtless denied the tree of life once they sinned. And were not allowed to eat of it. And so they too died. God wanted them all dead. Didn't want any aspect of them existing down to modern times. He wanted a pure human race without any mixture. All right, we'll stop there and uh, give you a chance to ask questions.
Yes. Noah was perfect in his generation, so we can assume that he didn't have any angel blood. Right. The giants that came after the blood, were those other angels that came down, or? No, no, there was additional angels, that, no doubt. Okay, so the seed could have been in Noah's wife. No. No, if it had been, then Shem, Ham, and Japheth would all have been. No, could have been what? Could have been, well, I mean, I the whole point was to destroy them and, and the flood. And what he saved did not carry any of the corruption. He selectively chose them. He brought them to Noah. So, Gabe, what do you think? The spirits that are on earth now are probably from pre-flood. The fallen spirits, like the demons or devils, the Bible calls them, that possesses people, there's difference of opinion as to where they come from. They're either the angels that originally sinned with, with uh, Satan and were disembodied. And when Satan came into the garden, had to have a, the body of a beast to speak because he didn't have a mouth anymore. He was a spirit. Those angels were there, just like Satan, disembodied, looking for something to dwell in. So that today, those fallen angels, the original fallen angels, look for bodies to possess. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that it's the souls of those mixed breeds, the half-human, half-gods, that were destroyed the flood. I don't think the second one is true. I think it's the original angels that fell. Well, I think no. it's really weird when you start talking about what about halves and fourth breeds and eighth breeds, that kind of thing. Okay, when he says they left their habitation, left their bodies, we're not suggesting that what he's saying is that they, in order to copulate, they disassociate themselves with their bodies, but that they left, he says they went after strange flesh. In other words, they left their natural flesh, their natural habitation, and join themselves to a different kind of flesh. All right, we'll uh, pray and dismiss. Get your own print of Mike's Revelation painting at ngj.org revelation. Available as a poster or a full-size banner and includes a copy of Mike's Revelation Handbook Study Guide.